folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is a live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show, comedy on Power Talk. Please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our free app to your smartphone so you can stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast, the Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, the Jake Feinberg Show. Can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today. Done two interviews this morning, and... um, ringing the bell again with a, a cat that, you know, the bottom line is, I mean, you could make an argument that, um, I, I mean, a band needs to have a badass bass player. And if they don't, it's probably not going to be working out too well. <laughs> and that's pretty much all that all needs to be said for my next guest, Jacob Silver. Welcome to the Jay Feinberg Show. Thank you. Thank you for having me, man. It's nice yeah. to be here. Yeah, man. Great, great hang. Thank you for healing me. Um, you know, just when when did you um, like when did the un- understanding of like the conversation and music dawn on you? Was it like from an early age, or or was it when you started playing with a group? Yeah, I mean, I started. My parents started me on the piano when I was, I think, four or five but I didn't really ever enjoy it, you know? And and then I quit music, I think when I was about 12 or 13. And then I came back to it when I was 15 on the bass. And when I came back to it sort of on my terms, that's when I started loving it, you know? And that's when I just, you know, I was in the practice room 12 hours a day, you know, you couldn't get the bass out of my hands at that point. Um, But it's funny when I started, the last thing I wanted to do was sit there at the piano and play music. Right. Well, you were, I mean, it was like, it's like a religion in some ways. Like you're being directed to be told who the savior is when you need to find your own truth. And to me, it's like, you exactly. you know, you found the base on your terms, man. I mean, did you play the, yeah, up, did yeah. you play the upright at all or, or, or never, or just the electric? I started on the upright, um, playing mostly like classical upright. As a matter of fact, um, classical, I classical upright. upright? I mean, that is, yeah. see, I was hearing some, like, Len Lasher shit in there. It was, this, this stuff <laughs> was so, like, Francois Rabath. I mean, this was really deep shit. That oh, you, yeah. You know, like, I mean, that's, uh, Grisman told me about this album, Baseball, that uh, Francois Rabath did, uh, and it's just like a double bass concerto. But, yeah, there was some third, yeah. there was third, I guess, do you feel like, I mean, I saw you with Ryan Scott and Tony Mason, and you guys were just like creating, yeah. creating instant vocabulary on the bandstand. But I just wonder yeah. if you try to incorporate third stream music in all your in all your musical performances, or do you find yourself, um, you know, taking gigs that because of the dough? Or I mean, I mean, are you, or are you somebody who's always trying to channel yourself and playing a totally authentic Jacob Silver music? I mean, I. I've always tried to be myself no matter what context I'm in. You know, I was always, I always felt really strongly about being myself even when I was playing in orchestras. Um, and I, I certainly got a few tongue lashes from the other uh, bass players in the section um, and quickly <laughs> realized that maybe that thing wasn't that I have my own sound above all um, and I'm putting my own kind of character in it. But when I'm doing stuff like playing with Ryan in a trio setting, I mean, then it's just, it's just, I can just close my eyes and ride the wave. You know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, yeah. And it, what's so fun about, I mean, I've been playing with Ryan for a long time. Him and I go back. I mean, I think I first met Ryan when I was uh, 
15 years old, wow. 16 years old. That's uh, great. Yeah. That's yeah. Great. We're from the same hometown. So, um, but I, I pretty much approach playing with him the same way I approach with playing with anybody else. Like I, I listen to what the melody is and then try to construct a line around the melody, kind of, kind of frame the melody, you know, it's, it's kind of classic bass playing stuff, but you know, it takes a, it takes a while to, to really understand how to do it. And uh, it takes a lot of focus to, to do it right. What about the idea, like, you can't increase the sonic nature of the music, um, you know, without amplification. But with, you know, with physicality and with, um, so, you know, and, and some sort of alacrity, you can increase the soul in the music. And, like, to, mm -hmm. me, to me, music is, a, is, a, is part of what, you know, what I love seeing about, like, what I saw with you guys at the bowl is just... Um, Fearless, willing to take chances, like just a kind of a, a punk rock attitude with like a third stream of consciousness or, or you know, multiple streams. Um, it wasn't a formula trip, you know, and no, no. I mean, so have you have you don't do you do a lot of studio work in the modern day? And if so, do you find it to be somewhat anonymous in the sense that you can get called for a gig plug in, do your part, and they say, thanks, you can go home now, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly do some of that, but, I mean, I like to think that, that people are calling me because they want, you know, whatever my flavor is to put on it. So no matter what, I'm still going to do it kind of differently every time. I mean, even if it's a line that I've actually written down on paper and I'm going to play exactly those notes, I mean, I'm still going to put a different kind of feeling, a different energy, different accents on it depending on, I don't know the moment, um, but the nice thing about, in particular, guys like Ryan and and Tony, I mean those people are, are those are two of the best musicians that I've that I know of. You know, um, not even people that I've played with, but those are those are two of like the best musicians. And when you're dealing with people that are that good, I mean, assuming that you have a basic understanding of what the form is of the song that you're playing, I mean, you can just you can just go and have a great time. Um, and that's, that's been kind of like a tenet of my playing since I was a kid, uh, me and, and, uh, a few of my friends, I, I never really sat down and learned jazz standards, you know, like right. a lot of my friends did, right. you know, you couldn't, if, if I had to, you know, like write down the chords to, to like all the things. No, 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 like I, 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 no, I, I dig it. I dig it. I dig but, it. but the thing is, is, is we, when, when we were kids, we would just go into a, a garage and we would just improv for like six, eight hours straight oh. and we would record it Jeez. and then we would find the good stuff and then we would construct songs like that. Um, so it was a little bit more organic. So it comes from a place of jamming and then sort of as I progressed and as I matured a little bit of a musician, I, I figured out how to like, you know, incorporate a little bit more of form into it, especially when I'm coming as a bass player, professional bass player, like, you know, playing with other people and they have already written forms, figuring how to take some of that sort of playful attitude that, that, that I developed as a, as a uh, young musician uh, into a, into a, into a, like a already written song or something like that. It's really fun. <laughs> you know, I mean, I wanted to read you this quote from uh, being that you started on upright, uh, the, the great Glenn Moore from Oregon. Uh, I don't know if you're hip, if you like that band yeah. or not, but they're, they're a great world acoustic band. And, uh, he said, he said, Scotty LaFaro's first instrument was the clarinet, so he played a lot of counterpoint with Bill Evans. 
Bill, as yeah. it turned out, was playing very consistently, so LaFaro could play counter melodies on the bass. The last trio yeah. album they did, there's an inter, there's a lot of interplay and a lot of back and forth, and there's a lot of bass in the high register. Um, and, and then he goes on to talk about, uh, you know, th- that differentiating from Ray Bur- Ray Brown. So I wanted you to first take the idea of um, talking about. Uh, being part of the conversation as a bass player, why that's important, and also um, playing counter uh, counter melodies to the to whatever the traditional lead instrument would be. How how do you do that? How how is that an is that a feel thing or is that I mean I mean just riff on that any way you want. Yeah, well, I say part, part, a lot of it just comes down to like who you are and 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 where where you kind of just tend to go in the first place like you think about a guy like ray brown i mean ray brown i i remember watching this video uh like tutorial of a vhs that my grandpa got me when i was a kid of of ray brown and he you know he went through he would do chromatic scales you know every key in first position you know he it didn't even look like he was moving his left hand and he would do inversions and it was just I was like, oh, that's so cool. And he was like, he basically said, if you can, if you can do this, if you can figure out how to play in every key and not leave first position, you're going to be working for the rest of your life. <laughs> and, you know, Ray Brown, I mean, I don't know if he was, I think Ron Carter is the most recorded bass player. I'm not really sure. Right. Uh, but Ray Brown certainly has been on a lot of stuff. Dude, and he it, had the keys because... to the town in LA. I mean, they gave him the keys to the city. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Exactly. You know, and, you know, he certainly can play up high and he can play fast, but when you hear him just walking yeah. bass down low, like mid-tempo, there's, you, you're instantly like, oh, that's Ray Brown. And it's, it's like the swingingest stuff you've ever heard in your life. Now, Scott LaFaro, I mean, Scott LaFaro is just Scott LaFaro. I mean, you can't – it's not one or the other. I would just say, like, that he does that stuff because he is who he is, and he has that sense of counterpoint because that's just who he is. But I think Ray Brown has that as well. He's just kind of fitting into the, the you know, like the tradition of, of bass playing a little bit more, uh, I don't know, the way he does it, you know. Um, and I, I've always, myself, I've always kind of gravitated towards that. That's why I've always been such a James Jamerson freak as well, uh, because James Jamerson comes from the same school, I think, as Ray Brown, as like keep it down low, um, do what you was expected of you as a bass player, you know, in a band, um, but figure out how to be yourself within those contexts, within those rules. Did um, Jamerson, did Jamerson play counterpoint to a lot of the vocals on the soul tunes that, that everybody knows? I would say absolutely. And why yeah, is that definitely. so effective? I think that that is a, a missing uh, art in today's modern, modern music and for a variety of re- And yeah. I just wanted you to talk about, the 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 inflection in the music that it gives off when you when he when you play counterpoint to the to the to vocals on the, on the bass. Yeah, well, I think because you're a Jamerson a freak, you know, it's like it's like I mean, I'm not I'm, as a non-music. I'm just saying, explain it to the layperson if you can. Right, right. Well, I mean, I I think it comes down to just filling in the gaps, filling in the holes, the places where there's silence. You know, that's where you play the bass doesn't really have a lot of volume to it. I mean, I mean, a lot of dynamics. You can't, there's not much of a difference between quiet and loud right. when you're a bass. So right. the only way to sort of perceive 
loud loudness on the bass is to place your notes where nobody else is hitting the notes, <laughs> you know, um, so people can hear what you're doing, right? right. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Point, yeah, right? Yeah, and, and so that, it, that means putting your notes between the drummer, putting your notes between the bass player, and most importantly, putting your notes between the singer. Um, and then you also, it's kind of fun being a bass player because it's not just you know, it's not just a percussive sound. There's also tonality to it. So, you know, you're, you're dancing around a bunch of different instruments, but the singer you're dancing around and you're kind of changing the harmony a little bit too, because you might be throwing in your version on a strong beat or something like that. And, uh, that just, it just changes the, the, the shape of the song. That's what you were and, doing uh, all it, night with Ryan. That's what you were doing all night. Yeah, it was so sick. It's just so much fun to do. You know, once you once you kind of get get in the groove of it and, and figure out like how to do it, it's it's just like you can just do that for the rest of your life and just have a great time. <laughs> I mean, like, so. well, I mean, like Ray Brown. I mean, you know, I mean that that is some of the sickest advice I've ever heard in my entire life. You know, basically, yeah. if, if you learn how to yeah. play all this in in the first key, and the you know whatever, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you'll you'll be working for the rest of your life. Now, I, I mean. Like the Jacob Silver operation, um, yeah. like how how many different cookie jars are you in creatively, and in order to sing for your supper? Um, okay, by that do you mean like like who am I playing with? Like what what kind of stuff? Well, I mean I like I mean like I, I guess like I wanted to figure out like Ryan's like like are you guys like doing like like New England tours? Like what kind of circuit are you on? And and, I is, see. and is that your I only? See. Do you have how, yeah. what kind of different gigs you have? Oh yeah, okay, so I. Lee Fields and the Expressions. Um, so check them out. Uh, we're always on tour. We're actually about to go on tour this Thursday uh, to the West Coast. We're playing. Wait, hold on. I'm, Phoenix. My uh, my volume just dropped. What's the name of the band? Okay. Lee Fields and the Expressions. The ex wow. Uh, Is it the gospel yeah. infused stuff? No, it's straight up soul music. Straight up. Wow. He, he's like sort of like part of the Daptone world a little bit. He's on a label called Truth and Soul, um, produced by some of the same guys, um, you know. Yeah. Um, Leon Leon Michaels and and Nick Nick Brennick. Um, so I play with him. Uh, so and he's quite popular in in Europe. So we go to Europe all the time, three or four times a year. Um, I also play with a singer named Jonas Police Woman. Uh, who is amazing? If you if you don't know her, check her out. She's 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 the best. Wow, this is um, deep, a so, deep bag, man. Yeah. Um, but did I you did you learn a lot of standards? I, I, did you learn a lot of standards by ear? Is that what you're saying? Like you you have a deep like you could play jazz <laughs> gigs, right? I mean, if they call that. Yeah, no, but I, I I never really learned standards though. I probably should learn learn them. But better. your ear is um, that you know, good. I, I your ear is that good that they could call off a tune in a tempo you could figure out what key it's in and, and, and work your way through the tune. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I hope this so. is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. Um, I haven't done this in a while. I also play with um, Amy Helm, uh, Levon's daughter. Oh, man. I still want to um, talk to her, man. Yeah. I love God. Man. Oh. That's great. Yeah, she's the best. She's the best. And um, oh, every once in a while I play in the Midnight Ramble Band, uh, which was you know her dad's band and still continues to play. We're going to Jamaica in January. We're doing some gigs. Yeah, I got it. You got to hook. Yo, can you talk? Is Garth in that band? No, no, no. Garth is not in that band. Who's in the, is it we and Weeder's in that band? Weeder's in that band. And uh, Brian Mitchell's in that band. And Stephen Bernstein's in the band. Yeah, it's, it's a great band. 
And yeah, what is it? Yeah. What, I mean, what did you did you did you get to hang? Did you know Levon before he he uh, like when he had the when he had the Midnight Rambles first cooking up there? Yeah, I I didn't start playing with those guys until after he died. Um, right. So I I started subbing with the with the Ramble band after after he passed. But um, I did play in a couple bands that opened up for him. So I sat like two feet away from him and watched him play for a couple Rambles, and it was extremely memorable i'll tell you that much i mean just to, just to, just to be in the presence of levon especially like two feet away and just feeling that backbeat right there is uh is something that i don't think i'll ever forget and no. what band were you in at that yeah. time that was opening for him at that time let's see okay so one time i did it um with a group called the mammals uh who i still play with they're still um, a functioning band then, i mean i want to know yeah so you the, go ahead continue yeah, and then another time I it was with a guy named Tal Rodriguez Seeger, who's uh, Pete Seeger's grandson. Um, Damn. We did we did we did a gig then, and then uh, I think after that I went on and played with Pete Seeger for about a year or two, right before he died. This was around his 90th birthday. We played like uh, New Orleans Jazz Fest. We did his 90th birthday show at Madison Square Garden. You were on like uh, Washtub Bass. I was playing upright bass. Oh my god, dude! You were playing bass. upright yeah. bass. Are you kidding me? With yeah, with with Pete, <laughs> with Pete Seeger. Yeah, Jacob, wild. that is that's divine stuff, man. Yeah, no, I know it's. it's that's uh, beyond. I mean, I mean, I, it's I think, yeah. I, I I'm actually speechless, tour, man. Jesus. My first tour that I that I ever did um, was playing with Arlo Guthrie on, on the, his 40th anniversary of Alice's restaurant. Interesting. Like really month. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I've, I'm, I'm very much involved with the folk music scene as well as the soul music scene, mm. <laughs> as well as the New York music scene. And, uh, and, and as, like I said, I also do a little bit of Broadway, this and that, you know, I'm, I play music. Well, I mean, you know, you're an omnivore, you know, you're an omnivore when it, I mean, you're just taking it all in, but we have a game on this program called, uh, name that voice i'm going to put this in for you i don't expect okay. you to know who it is but um i want you to pay attention to the content we'll come back and break it down okay oh, i wanted you to talk about uh love the way you um can, what do you consider love and how you bring love uh to people in your life oh boy that's that's a good one i love that <laughs> you got you got in three minutes well, in three minutes okay <laughs> well love to me is what makes everything go around. I think that love created the universe. I think that if you if you say you do not believe in God, you're an atheist or whatever. You know, I respect that. Uh, I think we all need to respect uh, how how each other feels about things in life. Um, but for you to say that you don't believe in God, and if you have a little daughter or a little son, and you look in their eyes. You can't tell me that you don't believe in love. Mm -hmm. And to me, God is love. So I don't think I need to go any further with that as far as that's concerned. And mm -hmm. I, also, I also believe that, uh, that, and especially at this time in, in the world, what's going on out there in the world, it's just insane. And we need to hold on. To love, we need to hold on to what love is. We need to realize that there's a heavy struggle going on in the world, and 
And I don't think any of us really understand. We don't understand it like we, we should. But I know one thing for sure, that this world needs love. It always did. Jackie DeShannon said it. I appreciate you sitting through that. You want to take a guess at who that is? Um, okay, well, does it, is it Keltner? Jesus, dude. I can't believe you nailed that. That is impressive. <laughs> dude, I, I mean, that's... Uh, listen, man. So, I guess... Um, the, he's talking about some existential stuff, but I'm just talking about, like, with you and Ryan, is love on the... Like, if you can talk about love on the bandstand. Because, like, that that to me is... Uh, as a non-musician, is, you know, I'm, I'm just chronicling it, but that to me... What Keltner was channeling there was the conduit of the fact that, you know, Chuck Rainey was right next to his hi-hat on Josie Steely Dan, right? I mean, the guy was cooking the groove his whole life. He's still got hang-ups. Nobody's perfect, you know, but at the same time, it was it was done for love. And I wonder if yeah. – I wonder about, as, as it relates to your um, uh, musical relationship with, with Ryan and then also – the general New York music vibe. I mean, is it, uh, I remember people talking about, uh, well, I just talked to Kat today. It was like, you know, we went to BU together. It was like very like sort of hierarchical caste system, almost kind of like competitive nature, kind of a wank fest in Boston. And then he moved to Seattle and it was like one big community, you know? And I just wonder being that you're on the ground playing in all these different cross-pollinating genres, you know, like what the, what the love vibe is in, in, the, in the Big Apple. Yeah, I mean, I would say that the musicians that I, I want to be around are the ones that, that put out a lot of love into their playing. And uh, that, that just goes with so, so much other stuff. People that, you know, aren't, aren't vibing you. I'm not vibing them. There's really no... There's no judgment. It's just it's just for the love of of, uh, of playing music and and being together in community, and and um, that's really <laughs> far and away the most important thing. And uh, it's it's something that you know every time I go out and play, it's it's something that I think about. You know, it's I don't know. It, it, I I definitely agree with Keltner that that. Uh, Things are so screwed up right now. Yeah, I know. Well, that's the and I, you know I inter, that was from my interview in 2014. I mean, I I, yeah. I, I I felt this coming a long time ago. Go ahead, continue. I'm sorry. It, it I know it's fine. Um, and if if you can take anything from being in a in a world that is as screwed up as it is, it's 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 it, it just it exposes and shines light on the fact. On, on what is important and what isn't and and being with people that you love and doing things that you love and especially something that is a spiritual act that is playing music um, it just emphasizes to me how important it is and how truly uh, truly special it is um, you know if things were great I think I would feel the same way it just doesn't really shine the light on it in the same way so no, yeah, it was something about like tragic, yeah. tragic events that that really go to show you. Uh, I've gotten a little older. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm uh, 
those things are just becoming more and more important to me. You know, you know, there's something about being a young kid and getting to New York and trying to prove yourself. And there's another thing about being, you know, <laughs> I feel old, I guess probably some people will not consider me old, but I'm all about to turn 40. And uh, I, I certainly am not, I'm not trying to prove myself as much as I, as I once was, you know, I'm just out there trying to, uh, put beautiful things you're just on the bandstand shedding man i mean this this is one of the most inspirational hangs of all time i think it's it's totally like uh uh you know i i found my voice in a in a in a tucson you know a regional tucson market but do you think what is the biggest obstacle facing musicians today it, it, i'm talking about cats that don't have a resume um don't ha- don't have a lot of live experience don't have a big bag of tunes but they're hungry they're just um what is the route for them i know you're in your own space but you do have a little bit of, of you, you have a little bit of perspective now after you sh- you know you've, you've actually cut yourself out of the woods with a machete you know what is the biggest mm-hmm. obstacle for younger cats today as it relates to the scene and is it something to do with i mean i started the whole jake feinberg show it was i created something out of nothing there was nothing there mm-hmm. nothing it's just like music there was mm-hmm. nothing before it, right and then all of a sudden boom yeah. 15 1500 yeah. interviews eight years later boom it, it was created amazing so amazing i mean break it down yeah. you know i mean what's the it is it's 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 insane and I, i'm trying to yeah. I'm trying to stay on the righteous path, but is yeah. it, do is is do do young musicians need a pep talk, or are there realities out there that are are different than when you uh, when you started? Well, I, I I think the the biggest thing you can do to improve your musicianship is to play music and to do it just nonstop. And um, <laughs> I think there are less opportunities out there for young musicians to go outside of their house and play gigs that are like five hours, six hour gigs. I mean, there used to be this gig that all these jazz musicians did at the Blue Water Grill in, in Union Square that I don't think is around anymore. And it was like a five hour gig. Right. It was like, it's so ridiculous right. how long it is. And musicians would just do it. And, and you know, yeah, I think they probably got paid not so well, but, but I guess I guess what I'm saying is is up until recently, you, musicians would just go out and just gig day and night and and hone their skills. I mean, you hear about bands doing it. You hear about like the Beatles doing it. You hear about Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers doing it. all these bands that like would play clubs for you know five days a week, eight hours a day, and that's how they got good. Right. And I don't think there's the same kind of opportunity to do that anymore. And uh, I think that's actually really unfortunate. So, I mean, you see these kids that are like total shredders on, on YouTube, but I'm, I'm just wondering, like, if you go out and just play a gig, is it, is it going to sound the same? I mean, it, it takes a certain amount of experience uh, of playing live with a group of people in air, you know, in, in a room to figure out where to sit and how loud to be and how quiet to be and when to push and when to pull and all of those things that you're never going to learn just practicing by yourself all the time. Um, so I think that's a big win, and that's still why I think New York is the best best city in the United States. You know, to, to be a musician, maybe New Orleans too. I mean, there's 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 so much live music in New Orleans. I guess Nashville as well, but a place where you can just you can just leave your your house, your apartment, and 
30 minutes later, you're going to be at some killer gig, either playing it or watching it. And it's so accessible. And, and I think that's just the most important thing. And that's all I would say to a young musician is just, is just go and see and play music and just be part of the scene. Um, be yourself. And, and you're going to be fine. <laughs> I mean, you're going to be totally fine. Was, was there a, a defining moment for you early in your career that you could point to when you feel like you were able to sort of handle all that came with the, I mean, John McLaughlin was called back. I mean, he was on tour with my Vishnu orchestra and he was living at the ashram with Sri Chimnoy and Shri's like, you know, listen, the disciples need to eat, John. You know, they're they're hungry. So he, he had, he's like, mm-hmm. can you please open a, an Indian restaurant in Queens? And so John McLaughlin, <laughs> while he's on tour, the first year of the of the of the orchestra, and they're having like commercial success. And when he comes off the road, he's in the he's in the Indian restaurant cooking Indian food for uh, the disciples. And um, mm. and I wonder about like. You've, you've said some stuff that indicate that you have a sense of humor about this whole thing, that you don't take yourself, you take what you do seriously, but you don't take yourself that seriously. You also appreciate being, you know, uh, uh, somebody who's taking a receiver of the music. You don't let any, you don't take anything for granted. That's the way it seems to me. Was there a moment where that crystallized for you? I, I think that actually happened to me at a pretty young age at least in terms of being like a quote-unquote professional musician my grandfather was a uh, flute player uh, who's a professional flute player that played in like the toledo symphony uh, (laughs) that is so yeah but he he was a he was you know he was a child of of the depression and um he had to leave music school when when he was at music school to go home and work so he 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 worked at Sears his whole life and then also played in the Toledo Symphony and then he owned a clothing store a little bit later in life. But he was, you know, his dream was to be a professional musician. His dream was not to be a star, but to be, you know, like a middle-class musician. And, and uh, as long as I can remember um, when, I was, when I was a kid talking to my grandpa about being a musician, he would always stress this idea of being like a middle-class musician. Right, right, and, uh, right. That, that's always been a dream of mine. I've never wanted to that's be like a big high, That's like star. a high bar. I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, being a big star is one thing. I mean, I'm not I'm not like a diva, you know. I'm not, I'm not a shredder. I mean, yeah. you know, um, but but the idea of, of being a middle-class musician where, where, you know, everybody in the music world kind of knows who you are. You, you hang with everybody. You make a good living. It's not extravagant, but you're able to live the life of music has always been what I've kind of been all about. And, and, um, you know, it's, it's a, it, it's, it's something you have to work on every day. Certainly not easy being a, being a professional musician. I mean, so there's some months that are good and there's some months that are not so good. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that totally answers your question. No, but, that, there's but no right or wrong answer. Kind of on, yeah, no, yeah, it's perfect. Right yeah. Um, um, yeah, no, I guess, so, I mean, that was, I can't believe you got, um, Kelder, we're gonna to have to do round two now. I mean, this is name that voice again. So take a listen, and we'll come back. All right, all right. Spiritual thing is is basically when you're playing, and it's just not bebop. This is other music too, but bebop is in jazz is probably. 
that's the high end of what we do mm-hmm. as jazz musicians. But but just the spirituality comes from it's it's like it's like something. Now this this may sound abstract, but it's something that Wayne Shorter said to me one time. He said that the only way you can really 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 play is that you have to go to the store and buy some milk for your grandmother. You know, <laughs> when he said that to me and the drummer Omar Hakim. Now he had a few few drinks, a few old drinks. Right. I said, "Wow!" But a couple of days later, it hit me. You know, because you know, it's like to come if you have one of those kind of families. You go to see your grandmother. She says, "Go to the store and get me some milk," and you go there. There's a love. There's a there's something. There's a love for something other than just what you're looking at. It's like your own personal love which you know which could come from god which could come from the force of life it could be whatever it is that makes you that you think makes you tick mm-hmm. that if you tap into that whatever that is it's not it's not a material it's not the instrument it's not the notes it's it's the life force it's this, it's it, and that is very when you operate on that band that's uh, that's or on that uh, frequency in life. That is very spiritual. You know? Want to take a guess who that is? Uh, yeah, I got nothing on that one. <laughs> uh, that know. that was uh, that was my interview with uh, my first interview with Stanley Clark from September 2014. Oh. And um, oh. yeah, and and I could have guessed that. Actually. Have you hung with Stanley? No, no, but I. I've, I've I've gone to see him play uh, a few times actually in the last few years actually. I still am blown away by the Keldner thing. I mean, um, but no, I think I think um, uh, what like when I saw you and Ryan, dude, I'm telling you something really tripped out happened, and people could say, oh, it was uh, it was the um, you know the elect- electrical socket blew and and it smelled really strongly of like burnt. It was something was smoldering. And I am convinced after seeing you guys that I had synesthesia that night, that I was like, Mm -hmm. that I, that that something was burning, you know, which means, (laughs) which means that, I mean, number one, um, you know, can you talk about operating on that frequency that he's talking about? I feel in some ways I've been on and off of that frequency for you know, since I've been on this trip and when I'm on it, it's a very spiritual thing. And sometimes when I'm off of it, it's, it's, you know, it's darker and harder, but on the bandstand, can you talk about locking in as a band? My feeling is, listen, when I saw you guys that night, I want to bring an urgency to the bandstand as a customer. You guys don't have to get me off. I have to get you off. That's my philosophy. I know (laughs) that's not the way people think about it, but I think now, especially with, the fact that we are a much more visual society now than we were 60, 70 years ago, much more of an auto, you know, there were so many autodidacts, like, you, you know, and, and, yeah. and so now more visual. So you got to let the body dance. And what is it like yeah. for you guys? Um, even if you're playing to three cats or 30,000 cats, like in any, how do you, um, how do you, how do you, operate on that frequency and can that frequency have a carryover effect for multiple shows yeah i mean i i think that what everybody wants to feel all the time is euphoria 
I mean, not just musicians, and we're not even in the context of music, but just in the context of just being alive. You want to be euphoric. That's why, that's why people get high. <laughs> um, exactly. And I think playing music doesn't necessarily guarantee euphoria, but it is a pathway to it. And I think that that is why I'm a big proponent of practicing both as by yourself and with other people uh, because the more hours you put in the more you're raising your chances of getting that euphoric feeling one more time because you're certainly not going to get it if you're just waiting for the next gig to come well if you're waiting for the next gig to come you might as well just pick up your instrument and play in the meantime and you might get that euphoric feeling and um yeah it can it doesn't matter if you're you're talking about an audience of three or an audience of 30,000. Actually, in a lot of ways, doing it in front of an audience of three is a little bit easier because there's less technology usually. There's like maybe a couple amps and a small PA or maybe there's nothing. Maybe it's, I'm playing an upright bass and there's a singer singing with no microphone and acoustic guitar. Um, right. Yeah, when you're talking about 30,000, then there's like, God, there's, you know, you're dealing with uh, in-ear monitors and, and uh, a lot of fans and uh, just a lot of distractions. So I would say that, you know, the times that I've been in context like that, it's actually a little bit harder to, to uh, kind of create that euphoric feeling. You know, there's a sweet spot. There's <laughs> usually more than three people, but, but um, <laughs> well, like I said, well, when I was yeah. a kid, you know, and, and we, we played in our garage for eight hours, we had no concept of an audience. Um, it was just, it was just playing music together until it clicked and then you get high from the click. And uh, that's I, seriously that's that's what we all want, right? I mean, it that, it feels really good. It feels really good. Um, do you do you do you guys um, do you guys just play local like you and Ryan? Do you guys are you on? Do you have a tour coming up at all, or like is there what's going on with that? I mean, it that to me was like that was a, bl- a blissful experience, and there were many of them on that trip. It, yeah, man, it. it it should it should happen more than it does. Uh, we play every third Thursday at Sunny's down in Red Hook. Um, ah, that's right. We don't have any yeah we don't have any kind of out of town shows at the moment. Um, you know we're always trying to set that set that kind of thing up, um, but uh, not at the moment. Let me ask you though, um, um, like over the Winter Jazz Fest, someone like yourself, are you involved with any of that um, in January? Uh, this month, uh, this one, no. I, last year, yes, I believe I played a show with Joan as Policewoman that was part of Winter Jazz Fest. But I think that's the only thing I've ever done um, in terms of Winter Jazz Fest. Yeah, I was going to say I'd like to. Uh, I mean, what's what? I guess what is what is your calendar looking like over the next uh, couple of months? You know, are you go, are you going overseas at all? Like, what what, do you, what do you, are you actually? And where do you need to grow the most in as a as a musician and, and as a human being? Well, coming up, coming up. Um, and uh, we're having our 20th anniversary there. And so I'm playing there with Jonas Policewoman, um, a wonderful singer named Aoife O'Donovan as well as um, Bridget Kearney from Lake Street Dive. Hmm. So that's a really incredible bill. So that's happening tomorrow. 
after that, I'm going on tour with Lee Fields and the Expressions. Um, we're going to Tucson. We're going to Denver. Wait, hold, on, hold, on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Where are you playing in Tucson? Uh, let me check. One dude, second. I mean, dude, we got to blow that out, man. I'll, I'll be backstage for that. <laughs> wait, am I playing in Tucson? Oh, yeah. I'm the worst when it comes. To I know. Money. No, I mean, wait. You're so wait, This is this is intense. Wait, wait. And, yeah. I might not be playing in Tucson. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, no, Phoenix. I'm, I'm sorry. I mistook Phoenix and Tucson. When, when you, Phoenix. Where, what, what venue, though? The Crescent Ballroom. Wow, dude. What date on that? What's the yeah. date on that? That's December 5th. So that's in three days. I can't make any promises, man. But I mean, uh, so so okay. So that tour is that? Are you road dogging it? You guys get a big bus, or what do you do? Uh, usually, what we do is like we'll fly to wherever we're going, and then rent like a like a sprinter, like a large sprinter sure, van. Sure, sure. Kind of back backline gear. It's not road dogging. It's, it's it's you know it's not like we're staying at the Four Seasons every night, but it's uh, I've I've certainly done. That, that well, no, I mean, because I mean, dude, it's um, like I mean, my, all my all my boys on the, you know, like the, you know, the late great Neil Casal and you know Dan Horn and those yeah. guys, like they're all just doing sprinter vans. They're doing the same shit. Yeah, you know? yeah. You know, it's it's yeah, you know, yeah. It, it, yeah, it's great. So so we're playing, uh, you know, Slims in San Francisco. We're playing in Portland and Chico and Vancouver. What, when are you playing Seattle. in Portland? When are you playing in Portland? Uh, December tenth. Roseland Theater. Oh, damn, man. I'm flying in that night to Portland, but it's going to be after the show, man. We're just, dude, oh, I bad. can't believe it. So, I mean, like, this is like, uh, and then you're, you're off the, so, I mean, over, you know, check the dates in the middle of January if you're going to have any yeah. gigs during that time. It would be yeah. great to, um, yeah. you know, and then, I mean, maybe, maybe just before we go, I just, um, what has Tony Mason meant to, to you in your career? I mean, did, was, have you played with him before? Yeah, I have played with him before. Um, Tony and I, it's funny, we've played kind of sporadically through the years, and it's been more recently, and it's been awesome. Um, uh, Tony, I was actually telling him the other day, Tony was who played the, the first gig that I ever went and saw when I moved to New York. It was Tony was playing drums. It was the Brooklyn Boogaloo blowout, and they were playing at piano. No, was it pianos? Uh, yeah, maybe it was pianos. Yeah, um, no, the living room. They were playing at the living room in 2003 wow. when I moved to New, to New York, and so he was the first drummer I ever saw, and uh, I, I remember it very clearly to this day. Um, well, that's pretty badass. And then, <laughs> yeah, and then the, I think the first gig I did with Tony was. We played on the the twenty feet from stardom that documentary that came out. We played we played a little bit on that, wow. on that soundtrack oh, wow. together. Um, and then after that, like you know, we've done a couple random recording sessions and, and done some gigs with Ryan, and it's always been special. Um, Ryan, like I said, Ryan and I grew up together. Um, as did, do you know of a drummer named Robin McMillan? Yeah, it's it's weird, man. I've I've actually been. Uh we've we've never you know had a personal conversation but somehow i felt mm. that um yeah I, i've been it, it, like he's definitely part of the same frequency so that it's, i was going to ask you if yeah. you, i was going to ask you if you even knew him yeah and let alone him and i yeah. grew, grew up together and we're roommates here in new york for about 
15 years. Um, so me and me and Ryan and Robin are just like old school buddies, and we've been playing music together since since we were before we had uh, you know facial hair. And <laughs> I'm telling you, man, you know, I, it, I, I'm so I feel back. so humble. To have connected with the with the with, with the, the the old school cats, man. I've, you know, I mean, it's like my generation. Oh, yeah. It's my generation, man. And like I, I totally. like I, and the divine nature just took me right. And, and to know that you guys are a trifecta, because I've seen him with like, you know, Scott Kohlberg and you know the Chris Parker, yeah, the guitar yeah. player, uh, uh, Margo Valiente. Like you know, he's he. You know, even my buddy Evan, who's a drummer in, in Brooklyn, uh, not professional, but he. Uh, He's a good drummer, and he's just like Robin has the most unique style, the most unique style yeah. of drumming. I know he considers himself a producer, but I've been embarrassing him with all yeah. these live, live video feeds of him playing. <laughs> it's just so fucking great. I love it so because he's the most humble oh, he, guy. Yeah. He won't come on the show, dude. He's the most humble cat, dude. Yeah, yeah, no, he, I, I know he's 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 the very best, and you know he's just all about the right feel. Like he's he's just got such a good feel. Right, a good feel. And, That's uh, right. It's a good never, feel. Never, never, never an unnecessary note. Um, very incredibly easy to play to. You know, it, super sensitive. You know, he really catches on to what anybody's trying to do, what he thinks they're trying to do, and he goes with it. You know, he's not. He doesn't fight. Um, he doesn't fight somebody back if if they're trying to go someplace. He's always there with you. Very supportive. Um, so yeah, it's always, it's always the best. I mean, yeah, Robin, Tony, I mean, there's just so many, so many incredible drummers. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's before I go, before yeah, go I ahead. go, I have to, uh, I have to pitch, I have to pitch a project yeah, do that it. I've been working do on it, yeah, uh, yeah. with a friend of mine. Um, we are working on a book right now. There's wow. probably not going to be out for about another eight or nine years, but, um, we are, <laughs> we are attempting to transcribe every song that James Jamerson played on. And we're going to call this book the complete James Jamerson. Um, and uh, so we're working hard on it. And uh, so far we've done about, I think about 300 songs. We probably have about 3000 or more to go, but uh, you know, <laughs> well, I, keep a lookout. Well, no, you know, it's, it's really, it's volume, like an absolute tome of, of, uh, of music that I think is going to be a valuable resource for, for bass players in the future and musicians just to be able to now you're telling me that uh i mean because this is mind-blowing that you're bringing this up because this is uh yeah this is what it was so there's a drummer out in los angeles a cat named bill maxwell uh he's a badass you mm -hmm. said it was andre crouch's drummer for in the 70s and produced all his albums he said this is you're gonna get a kick out of this. So I just interviewed him a couple months ago. He said when when Barry Gordy came out to L.A., they were trying to because Jamerson, as you know, uh, you know, had a really rough end to his life. He became a very big drunk, and mm -hmm. it was very difficult. Uh, when Barry Barry Gordy came out here, they were trying to find someone to play like James Jamerson. No one mm -hmm. can play like Jamerson, so they got Gene Page. You know Gene Page? Not really. Yeah, he was Barry no, White's music. So he said to write out all the bass. Ah to write out all the bass lines he thought Jamerson would play, but no one could read them except for the guy who Jacob Silver's channeling all the time, Wilton Felder. Wilton Felder, yeah, being right. a saxophone player, could read anything. That's his bass line on the Jackson 5's I Want You. That was a written part. Yeah. that so, 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 so they couldn't even find any... Obviously, you can't find anybody... His, his notes, I think the reason that it's a valuable resource, and it will be... Um, is because 
um, his baselines are unplayable. And so, uh, I mean, they're not what you would logically think to play. And so, it, no, they're not. And, and actually, when people try to write them down, they're they're usually wrong. Wow! And wow. We're, we're really we're, wow. we're going we're going kind of in great detail to figure out what he actually did. And it's 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 funny because they are very playable. Um, it's just what you hear is oftentimes not what he actually played. Um, so what you hear ends up when you put it down on paper looking a lot harder than than what he actually did. But if you really listen and figure out what he's doing, it makes totally perfect sense. And is not nearly as hard as 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 people make it out to be. Um, so that's part of that's part of why we're doing it is because uh, they they've never really been written down properly, um, and uh, hopefully it'll it'll kind of steer bass players in a in a good direction. You know, learning some of this stuff the right way will get them to, you know, who knows, could foster the next James Jameson. Well, or at least somebody who's going to expand the, the vocabulary and the lineage. But I know you're doing yeoman's work to do that uh, on your own terms. And, uh, yeah, with this, I had a ball, man. I can't wait. You know, please let me know if, like, you and Mac and and, uh, and, and Ryan get together for an impromptu. You know, I'd love to come back to Brooklyn to see you guys play. That, that to me, is a story worth chronicling, truly. I, I mean, I obviously have never hung with you guys in person. But, you know, I, I am, like – you know, I, I I have certain focal points on my show. This obviously is one. It's a very special one. I I mean, it's it's uh, so I, I take it very very with a lot of um, it's kind of a sacred thing. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Listen. Um. Have a ball, man. This was this was a great hang. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um. Yeah. We'll be in touch. Most definitely, bro. Peace out. All righty. Okay. Later. Peace. Bye-bye. Yep. Yeah. Tapped into the erogenous zone of Brooklyn. That's it for the Jake Feinberg Show. Three interviews down. We'll be back tomorrow. Bye. Let us and darling, I love you. Yes, I love you. Yeah.